1: February is celebrated as Black History Month in America. Across our state, communities will honor the rich history of African Americans. And though Connecticut is often viewed as a progressive state, by the American Revolution, it was home to the largest number of enslaved Africans in the Northeast. In fact, slavery in Connecticut didn't officially end until 1848, making it the last state in New England to do so. This is disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, we revisit conversations about how Black Americans have shaped Connecticut history. Later, we'll learn about the legacy of tobacco farming and the Great Migration. But first, Miesa Tisdale. She's dedicated much of her career to uncovering and preserving the rich history of a planned neighborhood for Black and Indigenous Americans in Bridgeport. Tisdale's family has deep roots in the community. Her mother's family has lived in the area for six generations, and Maisa's lived her life within a six-mile radius of where her great-great-great-grandmother was born. Her parents were also civil rights organizers and activists. Maisa is president and CEO of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community. I asked her how Little Liberia came to be. A long time
0: ago, so in the early 19th century, which is pretty early, 1821, for African American settlements or free settlements of people of color, there was a purchase made in the south end of Bridgeport, which was the first purchase in the development of of this settlement. What we see is that African Americans and Native Americans um, who settled this community, they were born free. But in Connecticut at that time, the freedom that there was for people of color was not at all equivalent to what it was for whites. So if you were a person of color in Connecticut, it was more like living in South Africa under apartheid with all kinds of things that confined your opportunities in your, in your place. And also it was a dangerous time. There was still slavery in the U.S. There was still slavery in Connecticut. And there were laws passed within this state, color-based laws that kept people in their place. So what we see with Little Liberia is that Podhusset people and African-American people came together and decided to start a settlement where everyone could live together. If you lived in the outskirts of town in the old days, you were more likely to be very, very poor, to be indigent, and there just weren't opportunities for you. So it seems that Native American and African American seamen, they were the first to invest their monies in developing this settlement, because as a Black man, being a mariner was the only way that you can make an equivalent living to a white man. And it also gave you a lot of experience as you sailed the Atlantic that you wouldn't have when you were here, because 90% of the Black population at that time was in shackles, and the Native Americans had been just decimated by by the inhumanity and genocide that they had met over the years. So where could you make a living? So you see a lot of Native American and African American men go to sea. When they're together, they also have time to talk about their visions for their people. They negotiate contracts with customs houses and such. And so they have a sense of personhood that they wouldn't have. So we see these, these people invest their money. Joel Freeman was of African-American and, and uh, Native American descent. He was a Pogusset. And he came together with other people in the area and began building this community. His sisters, Mary and Eliza, who owned the houses, Mary made her fortune working as a chef in hotels in New York City and later Joined her brother Joel in Little Liberia building her homes in 1848. And you see that there was a call that basically went out asking other people of color to either live here, invest here, or visit here. And it was results in people coming from Jamaica, coming from Haiti, all up and down the um, Eastern seaboard. People visited from San Francisco, Black people who had made fortune in the gold rush. And you see this community coming together. They ended up building a luxury hotel and having churches, schools, the city's first free lending library, and the city also offered sanctuary.
1: There are so many layers to the story of Little Liberia and the connection to the Freeman Center but it also speaks to this need to see freedom and citizenship and agency on a contingency that you're talking about the experiences of black people in the community of indigenous communities and how there still were these barriers to freedom, even if they were not enslaved. Why the name Little Liberia?
0: Oh, that that's an interesting question. Originally, the area was referred to as Ethiopia. We see in some deeds and such that they referred to the area as Ethiopia. And then later on, we see in about the mid-1800s, the, mid the name Liberia starts to appear. Liberia means free land. And when the little Liberia was first being researched, there was an assumption that, well, you know, maybe they just called their land Liberia, because they they related to Liberia the nation. And we know that Liberia came along at the same time, but now we're wondering if maybe naming their settlement Liberia was an editorial comment that they were going to seek free land right here, not going anywhere not leaving this space. Um, we see writings that talk about how men gave their lives and how black people developed this land and all all the sacrifices that were made. And so it might just be that they were staking a claim and saying, you know, we'll call our land Liberia and we'll settle here. The little was put on, on the front of the name in the 20th century, in the 1900s when the research was being done again. And we were looking back and distinguishing between Liberia, the nation, and Little Liberia, The Settlement.
1: I think it's the choice of that name and the various motivations behind that name speak to the global nature of demands for freedom, of people saying, why should I have to go elsewhere in order to create the community, not just that I want, but that I deserve. And that connection across groups of people becomes codified in what we see in Liberia. Talk more about the physical makeup of this. you said that it was a relatively small community, but was so rich in people and in connection and in resource.
0: Right. There were about 36 structures, a little over 300 people, but virtually all the Black people who lived in Bridgeport at that time lived in this community. It also had a strong tie to the sea. And Dr. Jamila Moore Pugh, who looks at the connections between free communities around the Atlantic, she made it very clear and and showed and made the case that this, this community all the time was aware of its connections to other people in other places. So for example, you take Mary Freeman, the railroad was a new thing but she commuted to New York City to work in hotels. And in 1848, that was was revolutionary. It was like jumping on a jetliner, you know, to work between cities. So, and New York at that time had a very, very vibrant and successful Black community as well. And New York was doing well economically at that time. So we know there were connections there. What's really interesting is that As you said, there was a need for agency, a need for prosperity to strive, to thrive. And if you couldn't make that a place there, well, you would make it a place here. And this community was self segregated, but it was different than segregated communities in the more modern South, say the 20th century South, in that they did have contracts and trade and earn an income from other people. So, I have wondered myself also about the ties to Haiti. The nephew of the emperor of Haiti settled here. And at that time, Haiti was a force to be reckoned with in the Black community, and it would be in years to come. So, you see, for example, the Haitian embassy later on, they were publishing. They were publishing pamphlets for W.E.B. Du Bois, right? And I often ask the question about the church in Little Liberia. There was an original Zion Church, and then they broke into two churches. But one of the, the church that remained behind in Little Liberia and was named in the late 1800s was named for Bishop Walters, who's considered one of one of the early contributors to the Pan-African movement that came later on. So you see him in 1900 at this at this massive <laughs> conference. Well, he gives speeches in London, but also there's a Pan-African con- conference in 1900 that grows out of the colored conventions, that cr- grows out of the early cries in places like Little Liberia. And we don't really see Early on, a huge separation or thought that people of color and Black people in different places would be separated from other Black communities internationally, that they were going to forge an identity and come up with policies and strategies together. I I often wonder when that sense of unity, I wonder when that began to change.
1: That's Maisa Tisdale, CEO of the Freeman Center for History and Community. After the break, we'll hear more from her about the role of women of color in Little Liberia. And later, we take a deep dive into Connecticut's tobacco industry and its impact on the Black community in the state. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Later in the hour, we'll hear about the relationship between the Great Migration and tobacco farming in Connecticut. But now we continue our conversation with Myisa Tisdale. She's CEO and founder of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community. Its work focuses on the historic community of Little Liberia in Bridgeport, Connecticut. I asked Maisa to talk more about the traditions and cultures that existed in the community at its peak.
0: You see people celebrating together. They celebrated an Independence Day, and we have to have more clarity about exactly which Independence Day they were celebrating. So we see both the Native Americans and African Americans coming together to celebrate um, freedom and independence. They do it at Seaside Park, at the shoreline. They do it at sites that were traditionally Pagusset sites, like on Chopsy Hill Road in Bridgeport, that later became an affluent Black community. We see them sharing traditions. What's interesting about Little Liberia is its diversity. It provided a sanctuary for people who were self emancipating from slavery, as well as native peoples who had been scattered into smaller groups in other areas at times when they met great deals of hostility. But what we see Little Liberia do so skillfully that we still don't see so much today, it allows people from different ethnicities to maintain their own traditions as the Golden Hill Pagussets did within um, Little Liberia. And they would come and they would go and eventually went back to tribal land. But we also see the development from my point of view of an African-American identity that we take for granted today. The notion that yes, we're predominantly of African descent, with large or smaller percentages of others, mostly European, but if you're from Connecticut and your roots stretch stretch back into the early 1800s, into the 1700s, you also have Native American ancestry as well. So we see that this community managed to be diverse, to, to honor and uphold traditions of the individual groups while also allowing some others to become what we now know as African-Americans. And I hope that we are able to get more information and study that more closely.
1: One of the things that I find so unique and instructive about Little Liberia, even in the reflections that you just gave, is that this was a space where women of color could be leaders were leaders were curating this community and in particular the two sisters mary and eliza freeman who were trailblazers in their own right but were also creating this legacy for other people what did it mean for these two women mary and eliza to be leading so many of the efforts to create this community
0: now this is the interesting thing we know of these women from the legal documents that are left behind, as opposed to from letters. We know about them from their architecture, from the choices that they made for their two houses. Um, Mary's house was austere, had two sides, one that allowed her to have income she rented out, and the side that she lived in. Eliza's house was more ornate. We see Eliza in the inventory after her death, we see lots of fancy clothes. We don't so much see that for Mary. What's interesting is that the men in this community, there are writings that document their ideas and and their deeds, but for the women, we have to look at what they owned, what they developed. So we see women who owned, a one woman who owned a restaurant downtown in Bridgeport, right on the bustling waterfront. We see Mary and Eliza and their real estate development and ties to community outside of Little Liberia as well, but we don't actually have images of them. We don't actually have letters from them, but we see the results of their work. The same thing with Presence Jackson. We we see her works and deeds as well. But we don't hear their voices and we don't have their pictures. I hope in time that we discover them that they were captured in some way, but they did play a very, very important role in indigenous cultures, in African cultures, and also in these free communities that were seafaring women did play very important roles in the seafaring communities, the men were away most of the time. And so it was up to the women to take this money and make it work for the community. So they ran businesses, they taught other people trades and ways of making a living. And they they passed this knowledge on. Making a statement saying that I am here I am a force to be reckoned with. My place is on this soil. By literally building a community, building houses, building businesses, that was a spirit of entrepreneurship that these women did pass on, even if they didn't pass on their images or things written in their own hand.
1: Let's talk about that legacy and and what gets passed on. And many people will listen to our conversation, Maisa, and they will ask, what can we do to support? What needs to be done to continue this legacy so that more people know about this, but also can understand how that tradition of entrepreneurship, of freedom, and of sanctuary in 1821 shapes what we're seeing today. How can people support the work of the Freeman Center and Little Liberia?
0: Thank you for that question because when we first started doing this work people thought of us as a traditional preservation organization or historical society which you know we are there are elements of that but what we're really focused on is preservation based economic equity and development. So we're looking at we're looking at Little Liberia in the efforts of that community as an inspiration. So yes, what can we take from that? One of the things that we can take from that is that it's really, really important to develop the South End community around us and to have that be also a sanctuary community that welcomes people from diverse backgrounds and diverse socioeconomic status. So that's really important to us. To that end, the first thing that we want to do and complete is the restoration of the houses, the complete and total restoration of the houses. That's phase one for us. Now, after you know a decade basically of bringing together a movement of people and a coalition, of not just residents, but scholars, preservationists, we're in a good position now where the restoration is. We were delayed by the pandemic, but after being designated one of the 11 most endangered historic places in 2018, it cleared the way for the state, for the city to actually help us in terms of funding. So the state of Connecticut has actually dedicated $1.6 million to the restoration of the houses. A portion of that was historic preservation money that was from the city. So we're really fortunate in that regard. Connecticut humanities stepped up. Phase two consists of bringing together the blocks around us in a vision that is driven by the residents and to really help have a, to develop a holistic, climate resilient approach to developing the area and building the capacity of the organization to do that work, because no huge job can be done without qualified and trained hands on deck. So contributions definitely help. Now that the pandemic's over, we will also need volunteers. We have student docents who are prepared and they were trained through a a program at Housatana Community College, eighth graders, who have designed wonderful banners and can give tours of the Little Liberia area. We wanna get them up and out and doing that for the public and just attending our events. So also, I've received wonderful historical information from people who know about the project. If you do have that kind of information, family stories, research papers, family trees, genealogy, we would be so happy to see it, to explore it. Artifacts, objects, all of that is is welcome. So contact us and let us know.
1: And we'll be sure to have a link to the Freeman Center on our website. Maisa L. Tisdale is president and CEO of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community. Maissa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Coming up, Professor Stacy Close of Eastern Connecticut State University talks about tobacco farming and its impact on Black communities in Connecticut. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Several of the most notable Black Americans of the 20th century spent formative years working in Connecticut. National figures like Thurgood Marshall, Hattie McDaniel, and Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. all spent summers working in Connecticut tobacco fields. Their employment was part of a broader effort to coordinate labor for the tobacco industry. In his autobiography, Dr. Keene reflects on his experiences in Connecticut and his train ride back home to Atlanta.
0: After that summer in Connecticut, it was a bitter feeling going back to segregation. It was hard to understand why I could ride wherever I pleased on the train from New York to Washington and then had to change to a Jim Crow car at the nation's capital in order to continue the trip to Atlanta. I could never adjust to the separate waiting rooms, separate eating places, separate restrooms, partly because the separate was always unequal, and partly because the very idea of separation did something to my sense of dignity and self-respect.
1: To tell us more about that history is Dr. Stacy Close. He's Associate Provost and Vice President of Equity and Diversity at Eastern Connecticut State University. He's co-author of the book, African American Connecticut Explored. Dr. Close, welcome to Disrupted.
2: Thank you very much for the invitation.
1: Over this last year, we have heard a lot about the need to understand history and the role of African-Americans in US history in a more complete sense. And one of the areas that is surprising to some people is the role of the tobacco industry here in Connecticut and how it speaks to things like migration. Talk to our listeners about tobacco farming and the origins here in Connecticut.
2: Sure. The, the thing about tobacco farming in Connecticut, it goes back a, uh, a number uh, of years. Uh, you could find it in small places and spaces in the colonial period. Uh, you could also find it in the 19th century. But in terms of the period of the Great Migration, it's around 1915 that it has a transformative impact not only on places and spaces in the South, but also Connecticut, because by 1915, there's a labor shortage in Connecticut's tobacco industry, and the industry had been modeled and organized, at least in the modern sense, uh, through the work of the Connecticut Tobacco League Growers Association, and so you get the shade tree tobacco industry that's established, but around World War I, they began to lose workers, Men who are Polish, Lithuanian, they began to go back home uh, to be a part of the war effort, World War I effort. And there's a labor shortage. And so the Kinetics Tobacco Growers Association, they need to find workers. And so they turn their attention first to New York and try to recruit 200 women to come and work tobacco. It turns out not to be a very good idea. And so they decide that they need people who know tobacco work from the very beginning. And and so they contact the National Urban League. And the National Urban League contacts the presidents of historically Black colleges. And one of the first to come northward to bring his students, in essence, uh, is John Hope of Morehouse College. And so by 1915, there's the movement for college students to come north to work tobacco. John Hope, being a um, enterprising president knows that the students can use that money to pay for tuition uh, during the year. And the Connecticut Tobacco Growers Association, they want workers that they believe will be well behaved and who will understand the standards and norms and what better people than young college men. First from Morehouse and then you get young college students from Howard, North Carolina A&T and other historically black colleges will eventually be part of that wave as well.
1: So I grew up in Virginia, and I was always fascinated hearing these stories from my family members about taking this long bus ride to Connecticut every summer to work in the tobacco fields. It just did not make sense to me that these young people would leave Virginia to go to Connecticut and work in the tobacco fields. But as you mentioned, this became an important source of income first for college students at historically black colleges, primarily young men, but for other Southern families who needed a way for their families to be able to earn that access. But it also was about creating greater access for young people beyond the income. How was that movement of people coming from the South, coming to Connecticut, working within those fields, how is that important as an escape or as a temporary respite from the Jim Crow South?
2: Yeah, it, it, you are correct. It, it was, in essence, arrested for the Jim Crow South because if you're on the bus or you're riding the train, and I, and I t- talked to a lot of people who migrated from the South who were riding on the train south to the North, and it was a bit of a harrowing experience. I'll give you two examples. I grew up near Albany, Georgia, for the people who came from that area, One of the locations where you had to get the train really to go northward was from Albany, Georgia. But for the people from Cuthbert and Americas, at least in the twenties, before they would board the train, they were harassed by local police officers. Some were arrested for daring to leave the places where they were. And then you board the train and then there's a period in time, right before you get to the Mason Dixon line, where train cars are segregated. And it's not until you cross that Mason-Dixon line, as they say, that curtain comes down and there's a transformative experience that you you get. And so the folks from Southwest Georgia talked about it. And so it's, it's, a, it's a, a sense of freedom because you can come northward, you get a chance to worship where you want. The Connecticut Tobacco Growers uh, Association allowed people to work, but whatever church you wanted to go to, uh, you could go to. Uh, these same black tobacco workers, they would sometimes take the trek into Hartford, go to Shiloh Baptist Church and other historically black Baptist churches. If they wanted to take in a show at the state theater, they could. If they wanted to go to some local restaurant with a Southern uh, twist and a Southern fair, they could go to the cozy spot on Windsor Street and enjoy themselves there and get uh, a same or similar meal that they would get at home. But it would be, in a sense, in a greater freedom, no signs or anything. Now, this is not to say that uh, there was not racism and discrimination in Connecticut. It certainly was, particularly when it came to finding housing for those who stayed. And in the tobacco field, you find that the workers were often segregated, too.
1: Let's talk about those conditions, because as you mentioned, It didn't mean that people here in Connecticut were immune to the racism or the segregation that we often see in cities and towns across the state today, but some people said it felt different in order to navigate some of this. What were the conditions for these, these young workers who were coming to Connecticut, both in terms of the conditions in the fields as they were working, but also the conditions for where they were housed or how they were treated within those areas? Some of the workers, when
2: they came up, they would spend their time in the fields during the off time living in tents. You had people who were stringers, who were shorters, and then eventually the growers began to build these barracks where the young people stayed. But that didn't mean that there weren't tensions. And I'll, I'll give you some examples. Charles Johnson, famous sociologist Charles Johnson, he wrote a uh, a uh, history of sociological study of that first wave of migrants who came in the 1920s. That was published uh, by 1923 by the National Urban League. And he talked about some cases whereby which uh, when migrants came up from Florida, particularly the area around Quincy, Florida. The landowners in Quincy, Florida, they were very reluctant to have their workers leave and go north because they thought they would not come back. And so to control that, they had their overseers, white overseers come north with them as well. And part of the process of coming north with meant that black workers would be charged fees to help white overseers come north who were going to watch them in the Connecticut tobacco fields. And Johnson writes that there were occasions where at least one overseer was just known for viciously cursing Black workers from the South and using racial slurs almost daily and and openly. And it was just something that was quite open and quite apparent in the tobacco fields at that time in the 20s.
1: I have a cousin who is retired military and still bears the scars of his time working in the tobacco fields in Connecticut. And will say that that was the hardest thing he has ever had to do. Not the years of military service, but working in those tobacco fields, feeling as if his health was constantly in danger from the conditions in the fields. Um, they talk about some type of worm or bug that was very dangerous at the time. But also I want to lift up the word that you use, which is overseer. So we're not talking about during enslavement, we are talking about during the 1950s and 60s of people still having this relationship to an overseer. The other piece that I want to ask you about that is how much did these young people make when they were working in Connecticut? And also who else benefited from that? So there had to be someone in the South in order to broker that relationship to recruit people. What was being made?
2: Well, you, you had uh, in the case of, I'll specifically talk about the area around Quincy, Florida. Uh, you had black men who were down in Quincy, Florida recruiting black workers. And the same thing in parts of Southwest Georgia, around America's Georgia, and Cuthbert, there were recruiters uh, who were paid to recruit workers. Uh, there were also sometimes white recruiters who were paid as well. But usually those fees came out of uh, the pay of, of black workers somehow. Now, you could earn $2 to $2.50 a day. Now, to us, that may not seem like any money, but for sharecroppers in the South who got nothing, uh, that's a lot of money for people to be earning. Out of that, people saw that when they were established in Connecticut, there were other opportunities. Uh, because eventually in the 20s, there were a few places where particularly Black men could leave and get steady work. And I'll mention two of those places. Uh, One was the Hartford Rubber Company. And just hearing the name, many people understand clearly why Hartford Rubber. Because if you work around rubber and the rubber industry, particularly around the foundries in those companies, it's dangerous work. And also a lumber company called the Edwin Taylor Lumber Company, um, as well as um, another company called, I think it's called Taylor and Finn, uh, that um, dealt with metal. Uh, And welding and other things. So there were openings there, uh, but bigger companies, no. Uh, The larger companies that are still around today, at least during the World War I period in the 20s, uh, they were not really hiring Black workers. But you will also find that particularly Black Southerners, influenced by the tradition of Booker T. Washington, they will begin to build and establish their own businesses as well. And so you'll, you'll begin to see Um, a a growing, particularly growing Black business ownership group by the 1940s. And many of them are highlighted and shown in the Black newspapers in Connecticut of the day.
1: Let's talk about that impact, both the economic impact, not just on Connecticut, but also the, the, the Southern towns to which people would return. And so they not only would be bringing back money, you say they also were bringing back this heightened sense of self-determination and and what we would now call Black nationalism. What was that impact of having this experience here in the North and then going back home to the South? Well, some of them,
2: you know, had already been, they had been certainly influenced by, by Booker T. Washington. And also in the South, they had been heavily influenced by Marcus Garvey because there were more Garvey chapters in the South than there were in the North. And I found, interestingly enough, that some of the same people who migrate from Southwest Georgia, some of them were already Garveyites when they got to Connecticut. And so that played into the nationalism and the Pan-Africanism of the period. But what family members would see were people who had come North and they were somewhat successful. Not only successful in having jobs that pay daily wages, but also successful in establishing their own institutions, you know, building and transplanting their own churches, and also writing and welcoming family members uh, to be part of that 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 uh, that great travail that makes life from north to south. And they do bring back their funds because they come back yearly for not only for family reunions, but also for school reunions. One of the most interesting thing about the people I talked to was the the car caravans from south to north, where people would line up five, six, sometimes seven, eight cars and just drive for 24 hours straight to get to the south. And they would bring that money back and bring that wealth back. But they, they, they would also, in the process, along with bringing that back, They would also inform people about what was going on and the changes that were happening uh, in Connecticut that they were making within uh, Connecticut, particularly Connecticut's larger cities.
1: We're seeing now a trend that some people have called the reverse migration of increased numbers of Black families and Black people moving back to the South or relocating to places in the South. What do you think is the legacy of Connecticut's tobacco industry overall as we see what's happened historically and the kinds of trends that we're seeing today?
2: Uh, Connecticut's tobacco industry uh, and the migration uh, has been instrumental in establishing um, statewide agencies. And and particularly, I mean, the Commission on Human Rights and Opportunities uh, because it was a Southern migrant uh, the Reverend Dr. John Jackson. Uh, his beating in the 1940s aboard a train, uh, well, I think somewhere around Tennessee where he was going to the National Baptist Convention is one of the catalysts for the establishment of that that uh, of that commission. Uh, you, you also have the fact that it's these migrants who are also instrumental in the election of, of black politicians. And in the same way, it's been this wave of migrations Migration of people who are heading back—that's been instrumental in changing the vote in the South as well. So it's a fascinating thing that's going on now with this with this with, with back migration. There's always been that conversation and that connection that stayed from the period of World War One, even up to this date. There's always this connection that's there, uh, and this longing to to be back home.
1: That was Dr. Stacey Close, Associate Provost and Vice President of Equity and Diversity at Eastern Connecticut State University. He's co-author of the book, African American Connecticut Explored. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tolarski. A special thanks to Reverend Philippe E. C. Andal for helping us voice the great Martin Luther King Jr. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.